Welcome to the 266th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of obituaries and writing about a year of loss and conflict with journalist Chris Majerian of the Los Angeles Times. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word about COVID calls and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 26th, 2021, there are 3,111,247 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has risen to 572,200 people. In India, 195,123 people have lost their lives from COVID-19. And in Brazil, 390,925 have died. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, Indian journalist dies tweeting for help after hospitals refuse to admit him. This appeared April 19th, 2021 in Newsweek and was written by Utkarsha Laharia. Vinay Srivastava, a 65-year-old journalist from Lucknow, Uttar Pradesh, India, died after being denied medical care for severe COVID-like symptoms. He took to Twitter in his final two days to beg for help from various hospitals and doctors. As per Srivastava's tweet on Friday, April 16th, his oxygen level had dropped to 52, which is 43 points below the 95 that's considered normal and significantly lower than 88, which is considered alarming. In his tweet, translated from Hindi, he said, doctors and hospitals in your state have all become autocratic. I'm 65 years old. Along with this, I have spondylitis, due to which my oxygen level has dropped to 52 and no hospital lab and doctors are picking up the phone. He addressed the tweet to Yogi Adityanath, the chief minister of the state of Uttar Pradesh. Srivastava's son, Harshit, desperately searched for a hospital bed for his father and waited hours outside the chief medical officer's office for a mandatory letter that hospitals demand before admitting COVID patients, according to the print. He was turned away from three separate hospitals. We ran from pillar to post, but could not get an oxygen cylinder for him, Harshit told the print. A relative lent us his own cylinder. I went to get it refilled at midnight. There was a long queue for that, too. I had to fight with others to save my father. His sample was collected Saturday morning, but we will get the results of the PCR test for COVID only after three days. No hospital is willing to admit him without a COVID-positive report, even though he has all the symptoms of the disease, his son said. On the following day, Srivastava tweeted that his oxygen level had dropped further to as low as 31 and asked when someone will help me. 
Harshit arrived at the medical officer's office requesting the security personnel on duty to let him in and speak to somebody, but in vain, according to the print. With trembling fingers, he kept calling hospital helpline numbers and other senior officials in the hope of getting some relief for his father. On that Saturday, Srivastava died. My father has been a journalist for the past 30 years. He always helped people throughout his career, spent all his earnings helping those in distress during the pandemic. But when he is battling for his life, there is no help for him. A teary-eyed Harshit had told the print outside the chief medical officer's office. Dr. Surya Pratap Singh, an Indian administrative officer from Lucknow, shared a picture of Srivastava's body covered with a bedsheet surrounded by his mourning family. Along with it, Singh wrote, the plea of journalist Vinay Srivastava was not heard while he was alive, but even after his death, his family kept waiting for the ambulance. Looking at the example of image and symbol of the government chaos, my eyes were filled with tears, Singh added. Several COVID hospitals refused to admit anyone without a reference letter from the chief medical officer, despite having tested positive for COVID, confirmed the print. This has been the norm since a letter to this effect was issued by the district magistrate last year in April. Since the news of Srivastava's death went viral, Uttar Pradesh Chief Minister Yogi Adityanath directed hospitals to also admit suspected COVID patients. COVID-19 cases are spiraling out of control in India. The nationwide tally of cases is second only to the United States. The latest wave has overwhelmed hospitals. The capital city of Delhi converted its hotels into COVID-19 treatment centers last week. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and I'd like to introduce you to my guest, Chris Majerian. Chris covers the White House from the Los Angeles Times DC Bureau. He previously wrote about the Russia investigation, the 2016 presidential campaign, and the 2015 United Nations Summit on Global Warming in Paris. While based in Sacramento, he reported on Governor Jerry Brown, climate change policies, California politics, and state finances. Before joining the Times in January of 2012, he spent three years covering politics and law enforcement at the Star-Ledger in New Jersey. He grew up in Massachusetts and graduated from Emory University in Atlanta. Chris Majerian, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from, and what the pandemic situation is there, what the vaccination situation is there today. Uh, so I'm calling from my kitchen table in Washington, D.C. And uh, you know, right now, things are, are pretty good. D.C. had a uh, a more troubled launch of the vaccination campaign than other places did. It took a little while for things to get get rolling more, um, but it seems like people are sort of over the hump with that. Um, as far as how bad COVID got here, uh, you know, it didn't get to the the level of kind of chaos or fear that you would have found in New York City or, or Los Angeles. Um, so you, things were always a little more stable than you saw in some other places where they they were hit really hard. So. For, you know, uh, it was a uh, it was a difficult time, but uh, I think we we were luckier than some of those places. So we have a lot of topics to get to today. I, I went back and looked at your reporting over the year and and all the way from the beginning of the year of two thousand twenty, um, and predictably, um, you were covering the you were covering events surrounding President Trump. You were covering the impeachment. You were yeah. covering international affairs that, you know, looked like they could get very much out of control in the month of January. I wonder if you wouldn't mind taking us back 
a little bit to that time and when the pandemic sort of first entered your consciousness as a reporter? So, you know, as a reporter, we're always looking for more time to do the stories that we're passionate about, the ones that we're most interested in. And I remember when we first heard about COVID, I thought to myself, huh, I don't cover healthcare. And I don't really cover the economy. So I guess this is going to be like a slow time for me as a reporter. Like this won't get that bad. And like, maybe I can finally, you know, turn my attention to some of the issues I'm interested in with, you know, intelligence or national security and things like that. Um, and then, you know, before I knew it, every single person's a COVID reporter. There's nobody in the newsroom who's not writing about COVID all the time. Um, and, and I've never, ever experienced something like that before uh, in my career. Um, you know, there are times when, you know, I worked in New Jersey and, you know, everybody would drop everything to cover a hurricane. But like that was for a week at a time. Um, never something like this sustained level of attention to, to one storyline. Um, and it sort of happened slowly and then it happened all of a sudden. And uh, I remember starting to think like maybe we should start taking this seriously. And I remember my wife and I, uh, we watched the movie Contagion, the Steven Soderbergh movie about pandemics. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, so like this is what we're talking about here. This is like this is, this is a, a fictional version of what we might be living through in, in the near future. Um, and, uh, you know, before long, you know, we just were, were just home all the time. You mentioned uh, your reporting in, in New Jersey, and I guess, were you working at the Star-Ledger at the time Hurricane Sandy hit? I actually had just left uh, New Jersey before that. Um, you know, I was there for the Hurricane Irene a year or two before, but that was not nearly as bad as Sandy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I missed that one. Hmm. Well, so how did you have to modify your work. It's interesting you said everybody becomes a COVID reporter, but right. the, you had to make a lot of changes just in how you do your daily, your daily work, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first off, like when you go through a new story, your, your Rolodex changes completely. So like during the impeachment process, I you know, had a list of constitutional scholars and legal experts I would call regularly to kind of get their take on things. And you know, there's not a single public health expert in my phone at that point. Um, so it's a matter of figuring out like, well, who knows about viruses, who knows about lockdowns and the economy and public health guidelines and things like that. And you're, you know, you're sort of, you know, for me as a generalist, you're sort of building that from scratch. You know, some of my colleagues, you know, they knew a ton about this stuff. You know, they, they knew about these issues. They had been covering this for, for years. Um, but for a lot of people, myself included, it was really a race to, to figure out like, well, who do I even, who do I even call about this now? And you had a particularly uh, a special challenge in that regard because you're covering the White House, right? Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, as part of that, we're, you know, focused on the information that's coming out of Trump and the Trump administration. And, you know, uh, like many other people were realizing very quickly that that's not the story. That's not, you're not getting the, the real picture of what's happening from there and you have to, you know, very quickly adjust that reality. What about, you know, some of the health and safety protocols? I've talked to so many journalists on, on COVID calls and they talk about the problem, just like you said, you know, who's in the Rolodex, um, building trust with sources, things that all of a sudden you've got to somehow do like you're there from your, from your kitchen table. Um, I wonder about that, but then I wonder also about, you know, sort of changes that might've been brought about in the White House in terms of being safe? I mean, we'll get to more of this, but. Yeah, Are you, as far as like, how do we stay safe when we're at the White House? 
Mm-hmm. Um, just from a health protocol perspective. Yeah, it's, it's, it was early on, it was very difficult to stay safe or feel safe at the White House. Um, partially because we didn't really know how things were transmitted. We didn't know that we, everybody needed to wear masks all the time. Um, and also, uh, you know, the White House is an incredibly cramped workspace. I mean, there is no potential for social distancing there. Um, so eventually what the, the press association did, what, what our college did was we actually just limited who would go in there. So if you watch a briefing now, you know, you'll see what it's been like for about a year now, which is like maybe the room is about a quarter full, maybe even less than that. Um, and you know, even then it's challenging because there's a certain denialism in the Trump administration about it. So when we flew on Air Force One, all the reporters wore masks, but the staff and the Secret Service agents did not. So you're sort of like, you're doing the best you can, but you're in an environment where people aren't putting that safety first. Were you able early on to get a sense of how the administration was going to pivot to this concern? I mean, we've all read and consumed so much news about the administration last year, but I, I still, you know, we go back to February, particularly in early March, before the real lockdowns happened. Yeah. It seems that there were many there were many threads to follow there. It wasn't so clear how the administration was going to come down about this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that point, we we, we sort of didn't, I think a lot of people didn't know how seriously to take it because, you know, it's not a, it's not a bomb. You know, when a bomb goes off, everybody knows what that means. Um, and there's more variables with the virus, how easily it's transmitted, how do you get it? Uh, how deadly is it? Who, who is it deadly towards? Um, so, you know, I think definitely early on, it, it was, people weren't sure how, how scared to be essentially. Um, and it became clear once, you know, people started talking about the, the death projections and you even very briefly, Trump seemed chastened by what he was actually talking about, by, by the numbers that he was having to reckon with. Were you able to follow what was going on there within sort of FEMA and HHS and tasking out those various different things? Because that was very confusing. Those of us who follow disasters all the time as researchers, we were having a very hard time understanding what was going on there. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a real alphabet soup um, and it's very hard to track all those moving pieces. Um, and, and things are happening so quickly as like, you know, things are kind of snapping into place. Um, so we tried to do the best we could about covering all our bases on that, you know, different reporters, we take different agencies, we'd all compare notes and try to make sure we were staying on top of certain things. Um, but it, it was very challenging because the, the response was so huge and so many people were involved to really feel like you had a, a, the full picture at all times. So in April, you were you reported a, a story, and I think this is the first time I, I saw this, about the way that the administration by then um, was going to use the opportunity of the pandemic to advance various other priorities that it had in immigration, in labor policy, in environmental priorities. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that story? Because that, to me, was a real sort of eye-opening experience reading that. 
Yeah, it, it was, we were, I remember talking with my colleague about that story before we did it. And we we're thinking like, you know, hey, all these little things are happening. There's all, you know, what, what's the bigger picture here? Because I remember when they said they weren't going to be doing workplace inspections. I remember when they said they're going to scale back environmental regulations. Um, we essentially, you know, talked it over. We're like, wait, these are all things they wanted to do anyways. Now they just get an excuse to do them. Um, and especially with immigration, because they 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 so lock down the border in a way that they've always wanted to, um, you know, with the uh, under the the guise of well, we don't want people bringing COVID across the border, uh, and that that those those rules are still in place under President Biden. You know, he's kept a lot of those rules there. Um, and this wasn't part of the story, but you know, thinking back on that, one of the things that was so striking to me about that is this idea that other people will get you sick. You know, other people, you know, from Mexico, from another, from China or the ones that are getting sick when really this is a, this is a disease that we give to each other. You give it to your family members, you give it to your neighbors. You know, this is something Americans are doing to each other. It's not something that other people are doing to Americans. I want to talk for a second, if we can. I, we won't spend the whole time on Trump, I promise. But I, it it is worth going back and recapturing some of that, particularly with the vantage point that that you had. One of the things that I, I was really struck by was how Trump positioned himself vis a vis sort of the role of the presidency, particularly as a as we had this horrible April of two thousand twenty, and he had a choice, you know, to sort of assume. Um, a, a warlike posture to assume a, a you know determined posture. Consolation was something I I think a lot of us expected. And you wrote a story in which you you really grappled with that. I'm just going to read a, a couple lines from it because it really I think it's 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 so well captures this moment in time. So this is from early of May of 2020, and talking about. Trump and grieving. And you said, there are no public funerals at which Trump can speak as President Obama did after a racist attack in Charleston, South Carolina in June 2015 on a black church, nor can he safely charge into a New York City emergency room and rally the doctors like President George W. Bush did with first responders after the September 11 attacks. You wrote, but even hunkered down in the White House, Trump has largely walled himself off from the nation's suffering. He's hosted numerous White House events with business leaders, lawmakers, and other visitors but only one with a handful of survivors. I was really struck by how you put Trump in the same tableau with Obama and Bush there dealing with these um, enormous crises. Walk us through that a little bit, how you thought about reporting that. I think you were very generous to Trump, but also telling a, an important truth about his his role. Yeah, I I wanted to be generous, like, like you said, because there are limits to what he can safely do, just like there's limits to what President Biden can safely do. Um, you know, the typical ways that Americans grieve and show support is something physical with somebody else. So if, Pre if President Trump had charged into that emergency room to wave the flag, you know, the media would have jumped all over him. How unsafe is he? How bad this is? You know, so you have to kind of show, you know, at the same time, I understand that this is not like, those other crises. Um, but at the same time, he had no interest in Americans grief whatsoever uh, and no interest in kind of showing that. I remember um, he had a meeting with some survivors and 
one woman said that she lost several family members. And he sort of just said like, uh-huh, and moved on. And what he really wanted to do was get back to the idea that she was helped by hydroxychloroquine, which is, you know, this unproven drug. And he wanted to pivot very quickly to the success story. Um, and, and so kind of, you know, every, whenever he's kind of confronted with that sadness or, or grief, he always shies away from it. He always tries to pivot to something else to, to, to make himself or feel more comfortable. You think that this was Trump just being on message? I mean, I went back and thought about this a little bit too, but you know, we hadn't reached the the point of sort of real, I mean, the hydroxy story was there, but like the real conspiracy stuff that would come out later and the real anger and hostility he showed to Fauci and others, that was still coming. Yeah. So that, that early May story was kind of a tell. And I'm sort of wondering, do you think he was being strategic at that point? I don't think it was necessarily strategic. I think what we're seeing is we're used to analyzing presidents in terms of politics. How does this politically help somebody? You know, but a lot of times with Trump, you have to think about it in terms of psychology. You know, can he mentally and emotionally grapple with what is happening in this country right now? Um, and, you know, even before being president, he was very uncomfortable with the idea of death. He was uncomfortable with the idea of weakness. He's uncomfortable with the idea of illness. Um, and, you know, you see that when he's actually president, you know, confronted with all these issues. And at his core, he's a salesman. And, you know, President Obama at his core, you, know, you could argue that maybe he's like, you know, kind of a professor figure or, you know, President W. Bush, he has his own kind of you know, situation, you know, President Biden, you know, has his own approach to things, but, you know, Donald Trump wants to sell you something. And, you know, with the pandemic, you know, you get to sell that this isn't that bad to sell that there's this drug that will fix you up, you know, just fine. And he tried to sell his way out of it. Essentially, that was, that, that was the, how, how he knew he had to do it. Were you surprised by that? I mean, as a person who covered Trump and we're in and out of the White House every every day at that point. Did you expect to see a change in tone or a pivot in his perspective somehow? We had long ago like given up the idea there was any kind of pivot coming. And that was always like, you know, mm -hmm. kind of uh, an idea that was done to death. Like maybe this is the pivot, maybe this is the pivot. And, you know, we've been around that bend a few times with him before. Um, so I wasn't that surprised. Um, but I was surprised by two things. I mean, one is we're dealing with death, the death of fellow Americans and, and death in, in great numbers. So you would think if something were to kind of shock you out of it, that would be the thing that does it. And, and it didn't. Um, and then the other thing that I, I keep coming back to is, well, politically, it would have made sense for him to be more in control and show that empathy and to take it more seriously. And you have, you know, his own advisors occasionally telling him that. So, you know, he could have won re-election had he done those things. It was in his own interest to do those things, but he didn't. So that's why I say you have to kind of analyze it, not just in the political realm, you have to kind of analyze it from a, a psychological perspective, because if somebody wants to act in their own self-interest, they're going to find a way to make that work for them. But he wasn't willing or able to do that. It's a really, thank you for sharing that insight. I mean, it's such a really interesting insight. And just to go back to that for a second, I mean, do you, and this is Monday morning quarterback, but you're uniquely positioned to be that quarterback. Do you, 
Do you think the election could have turned out differently had he been more in touch with the power of empathy? I mean, that's what we're talking about on COVID calls this week is the role of obituary in a nation and the world grieving with in real time with this enormous disaster. Do, do you think if he had tapped into that somehow that the election might have turned out differently for him? Uh, I think absolutely. Um, really? I, you know, if you look at the polling, Biden had a lead in the polls even before the pandemic. So nobody could say that, you know, the pandemic's the only reason that Biden won. You know, this there is unhappiness with Trump. He was unpopular president even before the pandemic. Some people were sick of him. Some people were always unhappy with him. Um, but, you know, beating an incumbent president with a strong economy in the middle of a national crisis as people are rallying around their leaders is, is a very hard thing to do. It, I mean, that, that is a real uphill climb for any person running against the president. So, I mean, would it have been a lock for Trump if he had handled it in a different way? Like, of course not, anything can happen. You know, the, you know, that's why you play the game, I guess, to use that, that metaphor. Um, but I absolutely believe that Trump could have pulled it out, um, you know, had he handled it differently. The impact of that affect is real. I mean, it then sort of endorsed this idea that one could either look past the death toll or downplay it. And governors across the United States and other elected officials and commentators sort of followed that lead. It's hard to prove a negative, but it's hard also for me to imagine governors of Texas or Florida, North Dakota, other places sort of taking the stance they did if Trump hadn't you know, projected as he wrote about in that story, that sort of unwillingness to empathize. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So just want to remind folks, I'm talking with Chris Majerian today at the Los Angeles Times on COVID calls, and we're going to turn the discussion now to a, a story that you that uh, reported in December, and it appeared December 26th, and the headline for that story was, Families are Turning Obituaries into Final Pleas to Avoid COVID-19. Um, as a historian, you know, we're always sort of looking for stories and pieces of evidence, you can't bring everything in. Uh, it's too much evidence in the modern world to try to tell a historical narrative. I feel like this story is gonna be one of those ones that historians are gonna look back and say, this, is a, this cracks open this time. And so I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the story. First of all, just the premise of it, that families were using obituaries as a way to make a statement of some sort. That's not usually how obituary works, is it? No, not at all. And, um, you know, I got the idea for the story because uh, Courtney Farr, who, who's interviewed in the article, he wrote, uh, this is a strange term, but he wrote a viral obituary. He wrote a very searing uh, remembrance of his father. And, you know, it ricocheted all over the internet. And I, I read that. And, you know, I was pretty struck by it, like a lot of people were. He, you know, he spoke to CNN, he spoke to a few other outlets. And I started wondering, like, well, were there more people who did this? 
Um, you know, he can't be the only one who wrote an obituary like this. Um, and I started looking around for more. And there's a website called uh, legacy.com where you can search nationwide obituaries. And uh, I started doing that with certain keywords and, and found some of the people who took a similar approach. So what was what did you start to find? I mean, it's fascinating to imagine you sort of now searching the national database of obituaries. What were some of the things you discovered there? So, I mean, the vast majority of obituaries are the typical kind that you mentioned just before, you know, a, a very straightforward retelling of who is this person and the life they led, uh, some remembrances of them. Um, but I did find, you know, a, a minority, but, uh, but a, a very loud minority of people who said, you know, uh, this is a moment to tell our neighbors, our friends, our family, our politicians, you know, what we really think about this. Um, and, and most people, you know, you know, they don't get written about in the newspaper. You know, the obituary is sort of their only chance to see their name in print. Um, and they wanted to take that moment to sort of make a stand and, and, and say how they felt what was happening to their family and to the country. Was it that these folks wanted to make a, a more narrow political point about the administration's handling of it, or was it somehow a wider point just about a country that's not paying attention? I mean, it's yeah. hard when you want to locate that kind of concern. It could be located many places this year, right. last year. So, um, you know, I found both kinds. I, I found if you search Trump, you'll find people who died and they'll, their family will say, you know, he's, you know, he loved Trump and he, you know, loved him to the end or something like that. Or you'll see somebody say like, I wish Trump took this seriously. And now, you know, I've lost my loved one or something like that. Um, so some of them are overtly political in the sense of, you know, they're very geared towards electoral politics and politicians. Other ones are, are more uh, community orientated, I guess I would say, you know, you know, one of the, one of the men I spoke to who, who lost his, his wife said, you know, she always wanted people to take this seriously, you know, please take this seriously. So it wasn't a political point. It wasn't, a, he wasn't expressing a political stance, but he's expressing kind of an emotional uh, desire for people to kind of heed this warning. So you written obituaries before uh, the 2020 before the pandemic? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've obviously written about, about death. Um, but as far as like the kind of typical newspaper obituary, I remember writing one in New Jersey about a former state official who passed away. And um, I think I think that was my first experience with what I guess you would call like the classic newspaper obituary format, um, you know, interviewing people who knew him and writing that story. Um, but but not something I've done typically. So how does. How do people report those? I mean, would you mind just sort of breaking yeah. down how you actually go about doing that? Well, um, the, the not so secret thing is that uh, most obituaries are already written. Um, you know, we have written obituaries for famous people who are not yet dead. Um, so when they die, it's already all done. Um, uh, so generally, when you do that, you don't call people and ask about things. You basically just do. Um, Research. So you're writing a, a book report on this person um, in a newspaper obituary format. So, you know, I, I've done one or two of those um, for people who are still still with us. Um, but, you know, people who are in the news and famous. Um, 
and you know you basically try to capture the major moments of their life and you try to create a a sense of how they live that life and uh you try to remind people of like all those steps that they took along the way um you, you know things that you may not remember about that person throughout last year were you did you find yourself reading more obituaries it, to me it became a sort of a standard genre of sort of making sense of what was going on yeah um i i, I hadn't actually um and there were obviously so many of them um you know the la times had a project uh you know the the the, the, the prototypical example is the new york times after 9 11 the portraits of grief and um you know this is so much more vast than that you know nobody could write a portrait of you know more than 500,000 people now but you know we did you know our metro staff in LA with help from uh students and others you know we started writing about people and trying to make sure people knew who they were and give a real sense for that um and uh you know it wasn't something that I was like regularly consuming you know as, as I was covering these things um but I knew there was so much out there uh, on that and um you know, I actually remember now there's one other obituary experience that I had that sort of relevant to this. Um, when I was in California, I wrote about the prison system occasionally. And I found a, uh, a journalism class at San Quentin prison, just north of San Francisco. And in the journalism class, the inmates had to write their own obituaries. And I thought that was fascinating wow. because, you know, these are inmates who are only known for one thing. These people have killed people, they've robbed people, they've, you know, they've, if you if you Google them, like you're gonna find, you know, bad news about them. And I was very fascinated in how they chose to be remembered in their own obituary. So I, you know, I read what the inmates wrote and then went to San Quentin and interviewed them. Like, you know, why did you wanna be remembered this way? You know, why this, why that? Um, so I wrote a story off of that. And, and the formatting is a little bit similar to the story that you read about COVID-19 deaths, you know, you kind of take a, a series of people and kind of take a look at all of them and what they have to say. Um, so that was in the back of my mind as I was, you know, thinking about COVID-19 and obituaries, like, you know, what is what is the theme here? What is kind of the the overarching message that people are trying to send with these, with the what they're writing? Just returning back to that story from December of 2020, you interviewed Kristen Urquiza in there, and she's been a guest on COVID calls a couple of times. Um, you know, Kristen is a person who I think wrote one of these, what she calls honest obituaries. Um, but then she found herself speaking at the Democratic National Convention. Right. I mean, again, sort of tying into the this total strangeness of 2020, that's not the kind of thing you could have predicted. What was it about that obituary or talking with her that, that um, interested you? So I find what she wrote very interesting um from kind of a, a philosophical point of view what what we what i talked about with her is how you know death is usually considered a very private thing you know you lose a family member that's your your family's loss but you know her point was that it's also a political thing you know people die for political reasons um her father died you know because he got COVID, but also because politicians who people elected made certain decisions um you know and 
she wanted to connect those two things. Um, you know, when you say that you're politicizing something, that's kind of considered like a dirty word. You're not supposed to politicize something. But I think it's also uh, an important part of reckoning with why things happen. You get to talk about that. Uh, you, it can't just be private. Interesting you point that out, that that sort of knife's edge of, of how we talk about death. And, you know, there's ways that people often think you can go too far one side with that, you know, to, to somehow grieve too long, too publicly, um, or to politicize it. I mean, we hear about this constantly after uh, mass shootings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't politicize this. But at, yeah. at the same time, I think Kristen has argued to me very compellingly, well, when am I supposed to politicize this? Right. I have, this is the moment when I have the attention. And, and I think people forget that silence is just as political as speech. Um, you know, people who don't speak out after a horrific event are, are choosing a political stance, just like people who speak out. Um, and I'm not saying one way is the right way or one way is the wrong way. I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not expressing opinion one way or the other, but you know, to say that one is politicization and one is not, that's not an accurate portrayal of what's happening. I, I think too about the, the timing of that piece you wrote, you know, that it came out at Christmas time, the end of the year, 2020, it was a time when a lot of sort of year, sort of trying to take stock of a year that was very hard to take stock of. Um, and that, that idea of spending a little time with these four families, um, I thought it was really moving. And I, I, I wonder if you could maybe just say a little bit more about the impact that it had on you reporting that story. Um, it was a very difficult experience. I mean, it always is when you're asking somebody to open up like that. Um, and also it was a very, it was different for me because for the previous year, I, I, you know, this might sound strange to, to listeners, but I hadn't spoken to victims of COVID. I've been covering COVID all year, but you know, I'm dealing with politicians. I'm dealing with experts and public officials. Um, you know, the Los Angeles Times as a whole is in the emergency rooms, were you know at funeral homes, were you know at people's bedside. So we're covering that, but you know, I personally was not doing that. Um, so that was kind of you know my very brief window into you know, what people are experiencing in, in their lives after this, you know, this moment of incredible national trauma. Um, so, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to hear those stories and, you know, you're, 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 you're glad that you have the opportunity to hear that and then share that with people. But it's also, you know, you wish you didn't have to at the same time. It's, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's such a, a signal problem of this pandemic is that, we have on the front page uh, or the front screen, whatever we're looking at, the numbers. And now we have vaccination numbers, the data visualizations. We're inundated with pandemic-related information. Mm-hmm. Um, and rightly so. A lot of it is sort of, you know, epidemiological in nature. So it's aggregate. But then finding the story, an yeah. individual story. And, and the obituary would generally be the way we do that. You mentioned the New York Times Portraits of Grief. You could sit down and read the portraits of grief. You, you could read all those, those stories. That's not every person that died that day, but you can read a lot of them. It's not incomprehensible to do that. But as you said a minute ago, it would be 
almost incomprehensible to read every life story of a COVID-19 death. So even within that, we have to choose a few to somehow humanize it and personalize that. Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult because, I mean, you know, these big things, they're, they're, they're so massive. Um, you know, there was the, the old saying, you know, death of one person is a tragedy, you know, of, you know, 100,000 is a statistic. And you were dealing with just enormous numbers. And, and you know, the nature of the death is that it's a private death. Um, you know, not even your own family member can go to see you in the hospital sometimes. Um, and if your, your husband or wife can't visit you at your bedside, you know, there's really no way to, you know, draw attention to that, that loss and, and, and in the traditional way of, you know, a, a violent act, uh, a terrorist attack, a, a war, or something that's more uh, visual and public. Um, this is something that's, you know, very hard for people to comprehend. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with journalist Chris Majerian today about coping and loss and obituaries and politics throughout the pandemic. And I wanted to turn back to politics for a second, Chris. You wrote a story on Inauguration Day um, which to me really captured the surreality of the inauguration and this transfer of power still in the middle of a pandemic. I just want to give a quote from, from this. You, you're sort of setting the stage what it was like in Washington that day. Downtown, you wrote, the streets were empty and military checkpoints had turned the road into a playground for at least one boy who rode circles on his blue bike with training wheels. The boy's father, Rob Brunton, age 48, said he wasn't sure how he would explain everything about the day when his son is older. You almost want to forget about why this all happened, he said. I thought that was really, again, sort of searching for that one human detail to connect us to this massive thing that's happening. Can you tell us a little bit more about that day? Uh, yeah, uh, it was, you know, like you said, it was totally surreal. Um, and you, you've never seen the city so empty. Um and, you know, when the city empties out like that, you know, kind of the, the landscape changes. And, you know, that kid, when I stumbled across him, I was just like, you know, trying to think, like, what does he see through his eyes? Like, he sees a playground where there was once a street. And, you know, people kind of just take it in in different ways. And I thought that was really interesting, you know, thinking about what, you know, he seen at that moment and um, how that's how that all the geography of the city has changed so rapidly. So how does the Biden administration orient itself to death, to the pandemic death, as opposed to the Trump administration? I entirely different. Um, now one of my favorite stories about president Biden was written by the New York times. And it was kind of about how it was, it was looking at all of his um, eulogies. So he's given at funerals. Um, and you know, he is somebody who, you know, knows lost from his own life, from his his former wife and his daughter. Um, and then, you know, much more recently, his his son, who died of cancer, and, and somebody who, I, I don't want to say is comfortable with death, but has experience with it and, and thinks about it and, you know, understands that that's part of, you know, part of what you need to confront in your life. Um, so he talks about the death toll a lot. He talks about, you know, uh, mourning and grief uh, he keeps a card in his pocket with the daily death toll on it um as a reminder of how much suffering there is 
Um, so, you know, it's a much more, it's a much different approach to things rather than, you know, saying, you know, well, let's just keep pushing. Let's not worry about it. Uh, you know, let's, you know, he's not, he's not trying to sell you something about how it's getting better. He's trying to tell you, you know, try to empathize with how you're feeling right now. Just a, a similar question about that, that I asked you about, about Trump in terms of the political, and I feel it's authentic with, with Biden, just as I think ultimately it was authentic as you described with Trump, the way he they're oriented both, himself. They're both expressing something about themselves that is sort of, they can't change. Like that's who they are in a certain way. But how do you feel that's working, you know, in terms of public opinion about the pandemic, you know, Biden's affect as a consoler, as a person who does, I mean, obituary would be, is a form that I'm sure he's very comfortable with, as you said, yeah. speaking about eulogy, speaking about people's lives and things that were lost. How's it working for him politically? Yeah. I mean, I would say the, the polling shows that people feel good about it, um, you know, on, on balance, um, you know, People like the job that he's doing. They feel like he's taking it seriously. Um, you know, I think there has been a response to it. Um, I think it's sort of going to be interesting how he modulates that message in the coming weeks and months because we're kind of at this inflection point where it's getting better and people want it to be better. And people don't want, you know, people want to move on in a certain way. Um, so he kind of has to kind of thread the needle of, encouraging people to still be safe, but also, you know, recognizing what people's emotional needs are. And also the science too, that, you know, we can start to, you know, engage with the activities that we once were, you know, the CDC, you know, has been more conservative about, well, you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't travel if you're vaccinated, maybe you shouldn't do this, maybe you shouldn't do that. And, you know, they're kind of coming around to, you know, expressing that like okay now it, it actually is safe to do these things it, it'll be interesting to see even how that affects um grieving itself because as you pointed out you know one of the things people couldn't do last year they couldn't be at the bedside of loved ones who were suffering they couldn't be in the hospital waiting room they couldn't be at the at the cemetery um they couldn't you know be in the mortuary that there's so many of these spaces of remembrance and of grieving that have been closed off those will be open again if they're not already open. So even the out, the way we grieve will be changing, has been changing, I think. Yeah, um, and I also wonder what is going to be the long-term uh, remembrance of this. Um, you know, are there going to be monuments? Are there going to be statues? Are there going to be memorials? You know, we have a Vietnam memorial on the National Mall. You know, are there going to be you know monuments to the healthcare workers who lost their lives or you know, other ways. Um, we had an AIDS quilt to call attention to the deaths from AIDS. You know, what what will be the thing that people take from this uh, or build from this? What would you like to see? Uh, as far as that kind of memorial, uh, I think one thing I'm struck by is uh, how many people have been so heroic through this time. Um, and there has not been a lot of opportunities to celebrate them. I mean, you know, I, I come back to previous things, you know, you know, Rudy Giuliani throwing out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium and he's got, you know, the FDNY hat on. Um, you know, what is, you know, what what is the equivalent of that now? Um, and I, I think we haven't 
we haven't seen that yet. The question I asked you earlier about that piece you wrote from last spring, that the Trump administration used the opportunity of the pandemic to move on certain policy issues that they felt they could move on in that in that crisis. Mm-hmm. Same is happening with the Biden administration, mm-hmm. right? I, I, one known view will determine whether or not that's cynical. I don't happen to think it's cynical to try to move forward on healthcare in the middle of a pandemic. But, but I wonder, as an observer of you know how administrations um, operate under crisis, what are they doing? Yeah, well, uh, I would say you know you have this gigantic society-altering crisis that's kind of broken things down, and uh, you know Biden sees an opportunity to uh, take advantage of that like any politician, you know, sees a crisis and they want to kind of shape the outcome of it. Um, and you know, I think he sees a couple of things. Number one, he sees an appetite for a strong role for the federal government. You know, we've had for a long time, you know, a, a, a strong suspicion of the federal government. You know, the era of big government was over with Bill Clinton, you know, uh, you know, Grover Norquist talking about drowning government in the bathtub. Um, and, and, you know, Biden sees like now is the time people want to see more from Washington. And there's been also, you know, generally in, in politics or in kind of the discussions about social services, you know, people don't want other people to get things that they feel like they're not entitled to. It often comes down to racial issues, you know, well, do they really deserve, you know, welfare? Do they really deserve this? We've had a situation now, though, where everybody has been hurt by this. Everybody's been affected by this. And, you know, the the understanding that more people need help and maybe more people need an opportunity for this um, has kind of created a, a window where you could see, you know, broader social services that previously broke down along, you know, racial or socioeconomic lines. On the, the racial front, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd, of course, was was the the disaster that compounded the pandemic disaster. And it, it may be the case that George Floyd's obituary was the most widely read in the United States of, of last year. Um, you know, sort of thinking about that with you for for a second, you know, I guess maybe things you might observe about how the administration, the Biden administration, is going to try to move forward on racial justice. And um, to think yeah. about that in the context of how one talks about death, because here you have this extraordinary death, and his was not the only one, of course, in that year that fits within this sort of category of what the Black Lives Matter movement is worried about. But it's all part of a broader discussion, but somehow it has to move a policy agenda forward effectively. Yeah. You know, he's talked about trying to do that in the wake of the the verdict and you know, the conviction of Derek Chauvin. Um, it's hard to know, though, really what's going to happen. And I go back to something that Biden said during his first press conference, and he said basically, like, we're going to take things one at a time. Um, and, you know, right now he's got his plate full with the pandemic and with this infrastructure plan. And he's going to be talking in a day or two about his family plan, which is more social services and more childcare and things like that. Um, you know, there's only so many things you can push through the pipe at any given moment. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, what's going to happen next with this at this point. Um, you know, there's definitely legislation on the table on Capitol Hill. 
Um, I think what you're going to see mostly first is the Justice Department under Merrick Garland is going to kind of re-engage in uh, investigations in the police departments. Mm-hmm. And that will be a way to use kind of the power of law and uh, legal action to essentially drive change without having to push it through Capitol Hill. We're almost up on time with COVID calls today. I wanted to uh, get another question in, Chris, if, if you've got another couple of minutes. And yeah, this is kind of a broad question just about how you think journalism has changed in this last year? Um, I mean, on, on the on the most basic level, I mean, it's just changed where we go to do our work. Um, you know, we're not sitting in, you know, shoulder to shoulder committee hearings. We're watching them online. Um, you know, we're, we're doing a lot more work remotely. Um, and I think we're going to kind of, as it becomes safe to go places again, um, People are going to wonder, well, do we need to do that in person? You know, should we, you know, not not for safety reasons, but just for efficiency's sake. You know, basically, you know, we kind of, you know, shook the Etch-A-Sketch and do we really want to draw it back the same way as it was before? Um, uh, journalism certainly changed because, you know, like I said, literally every single person is writing about COVID. Um, you know, that will obviously end and is already ending um, you know, as the story kind of shifts. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I hope, you know, it changed in the sense of how people write about these incredibly complex and technical issues and being careful with how they explain these things, um, in a way that kind of strikes the right balance between, you know, showing how serious things are and, you know, kind of needlessly, making people afraid of things. Um, you see that with, you know, some coverage of vaccine side effects and things like that. Uh, and, you know, trying to, you know, responsibly show what really is happening. Uh, hopefully people take that from this. Do you miss that? I mean, you've been describing what seems almost to me like a lost world, like the campaign bus, the plane, I was thinking about you, you know, in terms of like why reporters get drawn into what they do. And for me, if I was, you know, I would love the idea of, of covering a campaign. But so much of that is elbow to elbow, right? And and that's how you get those stories is to be in the moment in the small groups and, and hear something and then you follow up with that. Is that is that art of journalism gone now? It's definitely not gone. I mean, a lot of that stuff's gonna come back. Absolutely. Um I mean I think you know, if you if you just started in journalism in the last year, this was like if this was the beginning of your career, like that's going to be quite a change for you. Um, but I think a lot of that stuff is going to come back. A lot of people will miss that stuff. Uh, you know, part of it is just you know it's a romantic ideal of everybody hopping on a bus and cruising across Iowa. Um, but it's not just you know romanticism. Like that's you know people have to get out. People have to go out and talk to people and feel comfortable doing that and. You know, people want to travel. They want to talk to people. They want to, you know, see things for themselves. Um, and I think people are really hungry for that. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and most Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time. And I want to thank my guest today, Chris Majerian. And thanks for the amazing reporting that you've done last year. I mean, just to look at those stories is, first of all, you file a lot of stories, um, but also to it's a 
it's a way to read the pandemic, and I hope people will go and, and catch that, and particularly that December 26th story you did um, about those obituaries. Thanks for joining me today, Chris. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you.